This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, a quick note. This episode was supposed to come out yesterday. Unfortunately, early Thursday morning, we received the news that my brother-in-law had passed away. Since then, this week has been a mess of work and grief and getting my husband on a flight to say his goodbyes. You'll hear me mention in the episode that my live stream is tomorrow. What I really meant was Friday the 18th, so today. I will still be having the live stream at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on YouTube. I hope to see you there. I could really use the distraction right now. Rest in peace, Jason. We'll miss you. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. It's a rainy day here in L.A., so I wanted to do something a little more easygoing. So welcome back to the second Brevity episode, where I read some of my favorite, even shorter, short stories from reddit.com. I've contacted all these authors and asked for their permission before I put them in the lineup. These are from a combination of the subreddits Short Scary Stories, as well as Wholesome No Sleep. The last Brevity episode did really well, and I got messages from a few of you saying it was a nice change of pace to the longer stories. So I hope you enjoy another episode full of quick scares short enough to get some chills in on your way to the grocery store or while you're waiting for those pizza rolls to be done. We also have two sponsors this week, Helix and Zola. Listen for my unique offer codes. Remember, the more you use my offer codes, the more time and effort I can spend on bringing you guys extra content and extra long episodes. Speaking of extra content, before we begin, I'm having a live stream on Friday, January 18th, so as of when this comes out, I guess it's tomorrow. It'll be on YouTube this time, not Facebook. Just subscribe to the Scare You to Sleep channel, and it will begin at 9pm Eastern Standard Time. You can ask me questions during the stream or send them to me beforehand. You can email them to me or send them via Instagram or Twitter DM. Now. On with the show. No one noticed by username, middle name, redundant. No one noticed when the school bus turned down Brownsville Lane. If they had, they might have wondered why, since no one lives that way and certainly no children. But no one did. So the bus rattled and shook down the washboard surface of the road. Very few of the children on board were concerned. They rode the bus every day. It was safe and predictable. And if there was a change in the schedule, then surely it was done under the watchful eye of an adult. 
A girl in the middle sat alone, staring wide-eyed at the changing landscape around her. The bus drove on down Brownsville Lane, the trees growing thicker as the sky disappeared from sight. Before long, the bus was shrouded in near-total darkness, and the children began to notice something amiss. One boy gave a nervous cheer, not understanding that the bees buzzing inside his stomach were fear and not excitement. The rest of the children followed, buoyed by the inherent glee in not being headed towards school. Anxious chatter filled the bus until finally the girl in the middle walked, shyly, haltingly, to the front. The driver stared ahead, navigating the increasingly narrow path the bus followed. Excuse me, she said, voice barely more than a whisper. Where are we going? The driver didn't answer. She tugged at his sleeve. Excuse me, sir. We have to go to school. The driver slammed on his brakes, silencing the overlapping conversations at the rear of the bus. Wordlessly, still staring ahead, he opened the door for the girl. She gulped and stepped off into the humid mid-morning air. Her feet had barely touched the ground before the bus roared away, leaving her standing alone on the dirt road. The eyes that watched her from the back windows were fearful. All of the previous adventurousness gone. The girl watched until the bus disappeared from view and started the long, long walk back to town. Tommy in a Time Loop by user ZNabs I was making scrambled eggs when Tommy sulked downstairs with an exasperated expression. Good morning, sport, I said, waving the spatula. Suddenly, his expression turned dark. You say that every single day. What? Every day, I wake up at 9.30, no matter how early I set my alarm, and every day you're standing there making eggs, and every single day you say good morning, sport. His hands were shaking, and tears brimmed in his eyes. I was confused, but passed it off as some sort of night terror. Come here, bud. I hugged him close. Listen, there's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing bad will happen. I'm right here. See, Dad? You say that every day I tell you this. And be careful. Your eggs are about to burn. He said, sounding defeated. I swung around to find out that he was right. I flicked off the stove, then heard a knock at the door. Well, if you're so sure about this, then who's that, I said, teasingly. Tommy didn't look surprised. Just sad. 
Just go ahead and answer it, Dad. The ending is so much worse if you don't. An Open Letter to My Daughter's Killer by Tobias Wade An Open Letter to the Killer of Samantha B. If you're somehow able to read this wherever you are now, know that I will find you. No father should have to watch their child lowered into the sacred silence of the earth. I don't know if there is a right age to die, but I do know it isn't 17. Better at birth before eyes had filled with light, and I had learned to love so deeply. Better late into old age when life's fleeting joys had been more than tasted. Better not at all, but a world where prayers are answered is a world where they are not needed, a world that isn't ours. All the hours I spent playing on the floor were wasted. All the faces and bad jokes I made to get a smile. All the music I played to inspire a song or the books I read to inspire a dream. All wasted. I thought that was all it took to make me a good parent, but I was wrong. I invested my entire life into this single person, but everything I had to give was not enough. I wasn't there when I was needed most, and nothing I have ever done or could ever do can change that. The police found the knife you did it with in the woods where you dropped it. It was a slow death, they told me, but passing out would have avoided most of the pain. I wonder if you regretted it as soon as the blade entered the skin. Did you mean for it to dig so deep? Did you panic when the blood wouldn't stop? Did you call for help or struggle in vain to bandage the wound, or were you too ashamed? I wonder if you planned the kill at all, or whether time was flying too fast and your blood pounding too loud, and you didn't know how to make it stop until it was too late. Were you thinking of anyone but yourself when you did it? I don't know what private torment brought you to this point, but taking a life will never seize that pain. The pain is passed from one person to the next, enduring past life, past death, past mortal strength to bear. Until the day, long after you're gone, when the next victim sees the sun dawn without light or warmth, and all sounds and colors bleed into an endless gray. 
And then that sun too will set, passing on your pain once again. You must think that I hate you. I don't think anyone would blame me if I did. I hate that you destroyed my family. But I forgive you for everything. You may not believe me, but I promise it's true. It's everything about this world that made you into someone capable of such an act that I will never forgive. I still don't know why you killed yourself, Samantha. If you're somehow able to read this, though, know that I will find you. And somehow, someday, we'll be together again. Horrors Never Considered by user Guardian Einzel Recheck your math. I recheck my math. Same result. Why is there no planet here? Test your nav computer. I test it again. Same result. There should be a planet here. Check the math again. No, I can't. Why is there no planet here? I set the ship on a holding pattern. I turn off the hull lights and decide to turn in. As I try to escape under my blanket, I think about the events that led me here. I was lured away from Earth with the promise of making history. I'd be the first person to colonize a new planet. Get things ready for when the rest of mankind made the leap and came over from Earth. Everything was so meticulously planned. How did things go so wrong? I lay on my hard, cold cot, thinking that there are just some things you'd never think to consider when you were game planning for things like this. I thought about my husband. I thought about my girls. I'd probably never see them again unless my math was... No, no, I knew my math was right. I scribble my 50th tally mark on the cockpit wall. One mark for every time I run the numbers. Every time the numbers come up the same. I am exactly where I think I am. Tears start to form in my eyes as I recount. My food, my water, and my fuel know that there's no possibility of going back to where I know it's safe. There's just not enough provisions. I throw the blankets off my legs, wipe away my tears, and sit back in the cockpit and try again. I depress the red radio button. This is Icarus 1, do you read me? 
This is Icarus 1. Do you read? My voice starts to crack. Panic is setting in. Icarus 1 to Earth. Where are you? Where the hell is everyone? Please, please someone come in. My voice cracks and chokes with tears before I completely lose myself to fear and panic. I think about before the mission started. My only thoughts were on getting to the foreign planet. I never thought about what I would do if I came back and Earth was gone. When we pretend that we're deaf by user Hack Shuck. After a very messy breakup, Fiona found herself jobless, penniless, and worst of all, friendless, in a big, uncaring city. Her resume was patchy, as she'd relied on her ex-partner to provide, and her fancy education clearly didn't count for much. A thousand job applications, zero interviews. So... Fiona hatched a zany scheme. She'd heard on the news that employers were specifically hiring people with disabilities, doubtless a cynical box-ticking exercise to incubate an inclusive corporate image. So Fiona boldly decided to pretend to be profoundly deaf. What did she have to lose? Luckily, she'd spent a semester studying sign language and also... Her good, old-fashioned, upper-class arrogance usually carried her through. She considered practicing speaking in a deaf voice, but decided that would be crass or even offensive. Fiona mentioned her new disability on job applications and, lo and behold, landed a job at a prestigious financial services firm. Fiona stayed focused on her role soon getting used to ignoring every sound around her. The work was easy, and her boss, Doug, was very accommodating and sweet. Her colleagues, less so. Fiona found that whenever her back was turned, cruel words were hurled. Stuck-up bitch. Doug's slutty, deaf pet. Were the kinder ones. That son of a bitch Doug's got a fetish for the deaf, spat Secretary Sandy jealously when Fiona got promoted to Doug's PA. The men were worse, smiling meekly to her face, but after she passed them, they'd begin hissing perverted propositions and misogynistic insults that would make Patrick Bateman blush. What a cruel world, thought Fiona sadly. Glad when Doug moved her workspace into his plush, luxurious office. But Doug was secretly worse than everyone else combined. As Fiona sat tapping away at her keyboard, Doug stalked the floor, whispering all the things he'd like to do to her. I'll spare you the details. Let's just say that Doug had a very unhealthy attitude towards the fairer sex. 
The money was great, and as Fiona began working later and later, she comforted herself by harboring fantasies of quitting to write a tell-all article about the company's despicable exploitation of the disabled. Doug grew bolder, spitting venomous threats and confessions to the back of her head. Women like you deserve everything you get. My mother was deaf, just like you. Got what was coming to her. And those are the principal ones. Long after even the office cleaners had left for the night, Fiona nervously stabbed at her keyboard in the corner of Doug's office, facing torrential rain, splatting against his huge window overlooking the city. She heard bourbon being poured and floorboards creak and murderous mutterings. Then three things happened, so fast that Fiona couldn't process which of them happened first, or maybe they happened all at once. Fiona suddenly wondered exactly what had happened to Doug's previous PA, who was apparently also deaf, and she glimpsed in the window's reflection something sharp and silver hovering behind her neck. And she heard Doug whisper right behind her ear, I know you can hear me. The Regrets of a Time Traveler by user Pohoon I am a time traveler. Or, I mean, I was. You see, I was capable of traveling time however I pleased, past or present. I was a scientist with a great mind, I think. Being the only person in my time, no pun intended, to discover time travel. I say I think because I don't really remember my past. When I discovered this ability... All I remember was euphoria. My vision sparked colors I've never seen before. My body dissipated into millions of tiny particles, and suddenly, I'm in another dimension of time. Amazing, right? The thing is, whenever I travel time, through that tunnel that propels all of the particles and atoms that are a part of me, I lose a portion of my memory. Somewhere in that jumble of hyperspace. My first time travel, I forgot pretty much everything. Ever since then, I've taken caution to how I time travel and how often I do it. I chose to limit my abilities to inhibit the possibility of forgetting something important. I've forgotten a multitude of things. Some smaller than others. Around a year ago, I forgot the color of my hair, only to remember immediately upon seeing my reflection in the mirror. But it could get much worse, as I once forgot how to breathe, forcing my own body to jump the engine when I passed out to allow myself to breathe on my own. It was my curiosity that screwed me over. On June 18th, 9,214, 
Scientists, with the assistance of advanced supercomputers, developed a prototype. An invention capable of previewing possible occurrences of forthcoming events. The minds of this millennium were able to see the freaking future. The display, provided by code and text, made expert computer programmers look like toddlers playing with C++. Nevertheless, it was red making its predictions. It ran for three years, producing accurate images of the future. But in 9217, it ceased to continue. The image of the end date was incoherent, even to the damn supercomputers. Scientists theorized this would be the end of existence, the complete opposite of the Big Bang. Religious wackos marked this as the apocalypse and the end of God himself. I wanted to know better. It provided a date of the year and a hazy image of a dark and decaying earth just months before the end date. Being a time traveler, I enjoyed having the information no one else had. It made me feel wonderful. That's why I decided to go there to find out what the hell happens and go down in the books. And I did. Boy, do I regret it. I was trembling. My bowels loosened, my stomach turned. I was terrified. Not because the tall man with the inhuman grin on his face was walking towards me. Not because the deafening screams that were in my ears didn't resemble humans. Not because I had just found hell on earth. But because I forgot how to time travel. Skin Deep by user Dream Effects. Some people are born pretty. Not me. I was an ugly, greasy little thing with bad skin and no friends. At least until I discovered the wonderful world of YouTube beauty gurus. I stayed up late every night the summer after high school till I learned beauty sleep is an actual thing. Anyway, learning and practicing new ways to imitate the glowing goddesses that made it look so easy. I started college like a different person entirely. No one whispered behind my back anymore. Instead, they complimented me to my face. It was intoxicating and I couldn't get enough. I was finally making friends too, like Marie. All it took was a compliment on her flawless curls and... That, as they say, was that. We shared hand cream and matched our nail polish, texted each other about our latest makeup hauls, and even started borrowing each other's clothes. We shared practically everything. Which is maybe why her boyfriend thought we'd be okay sharing him, too. Brett cornered me at a party. He'd had way too much to drink. I could smell it on his breath when he mashed his lips on mine. 
I shoved him away and stormed out, but not before some asshole snapped a picture and uploaded it to one of the campus's Facebook groups. I tried texting Marie, but she wouldn't respond. I was afraid she hated me now, and I dreaded going back to class on Monday. But she greeted me with a smile as usual, alone this time. I knew better than to ask, but she told me anyway. I dumped Brett. He's probably just sulking at home. She rolled her eyes, but the smile she flashed my way quickly turned into a look of concern. Oh, honey, don't tell me you've been losing sleep over this. Your skin is looking rough. My heart sank. My skin. I'd worked so hard to keep my skin in good condition, and all it took was that little observation to make me feel like that ugly little girl again. But I wasn't her anymore. I had Marie now, and she fished a little container out of her bag and handed it to me. Homemade salt scrub. It has a little lemon juice to brighten you up, too. Trust me, this is one of my secret weapons. Go home and pamper yourself. You deserve this. That night, I wet my face and scooped up a little of the scrub. I rubbed it into my skin vigorously and screamed. It burned. I blinked my eyes open, only to see fat, red drops staining the porcelain. My face stinging from hundreds of tiny cuts. My hand, sticky with blood, slipped as I fumbled to turn on the faucet. I couldn't wash it away. Every time I tried to touch my face, the tiny bits of glass sank deeper. There had to be some mistake. Marie wouldn't do this. But even as I defended her, I could hear her words in my head. You deserve this. I created an elixir by user he who must be named. April 10th. 1988. Today, my dear grandfather passed away, peacefully in his sleep. This was the first time I saw death up close, and it's making me question the meaning of life. Why is there death? Why does life stop the way it does when it does? Why can't we just live on? June 21st, 1990. I've decided to research immortality. I will take up STEM after high school. Decided. Don't laugh at my idea. Others do. September 13th, 1998. I received my double PhD. I'm one step closer to starting my own lab. The pride on my parents' faces today was priceless. I'm more determined than ever to unravel the key to immortality. Don't know how long I have to save my parents from death. February 20th, 2030. More than three decades of work. But it feels like we're still barely scratching the surface. Each answer is leading us to new questions. Are we doing it right? We must be doing something, right? 
The government has decided to fund my project. This should give us an impetus. July 18th, 2036. We did it. Finally created an elixir that will extend the life of mammals. Well, at least mice. Oh, the things we could do with this. We needed to test it further before I can say anything more, but boy, am I excited. October 2nd, 2038. Testing for the past couple of years has revealed that this elixir, we're calling it Amruta, does impart immortality to mice. Trials on humans commenced last year and have given us promising results. Consumption of 100 milliliters of Amruta will make the human immortal. It's funny, actually. The body continues to function even when deprived of food and water. There is huge pressure on us to commercialize it. May 30th, 2039. We can now boast of a long client list. Eminent personalities and celebrities around the world have consumed our Amruta. Obviously, who wouldn't want eternal beauty? But I see this creating a divide in society. One section living forever and becoming wealthier, while the other getting bogged down due to loss and grief. My aim now is to remove this inequality and make it reach everyone in the world. No one should feel the pinch of loss of a loved one. December 31st, 2039. I've succeeded in bringing Amruta to everyone on this planet. Happy New Year, my friend. Tomorrow will bring the dawn of a new era. January 5th. 2040. There was... There was an accident on the highway today. And, um... The driver lost an arm. He was bleeding profusely, but... Continued... Driving. We had never tested for injury. It... Never crossed any of our minds. How could I have been so blind? Maybe I was hasty in my decisions. What do we do now? January 12th, 2040. Okay. This is getting out of hand. More and more people became reckless since they knew they couldn't die. We've been getting reports of how people rammed their vehicles into each other just to test Amruta. Now some tried to hack their enemies to death. Now, even though someone is nearly headless, he continues to live? What the hell? I didn't want this. This is not what I had envisioned. I'm going crazy with guilt. January 15th, 2040. These people are everywhere, mindlessly walking about as if nothing has happened. Worse, some have attacked the healthy people out of spite. 
My maid turned up with an eye missing today. I could see the bloody empty socket. Her abusive husband did that to her. They are just living on. All of them are just living on. And they have started pointing at me. Blaming me for their misery. What have I done? January 28th, 2040. I would have killed myself if I could. They're... They're everywhere. I can't even go out of my home now. They've surrounded my home. Some who have lost their legs are dragging themselves by their hands. I can't bear to see them. Others are attacking ones who are normal. Can you call any of us normal? I wanted to create an elixir for immortality. I ended up bringing on the zombie apocalypse. Forgive me. March 21st, 2075 Why do we live on? Why doesn't life stop? What is the meaning of life? There are zombies everywhere, I see. We've isolated ourselves and have been trying to find a cure all this while. Let's hope we will. Till then, this will be my last entry. Forgive me. Side Effects by C.U. Katie 2983 Adam fidgeted in his chair. Next to him, his wife patiently flipped through a medical magazine. He hated these doctor's appointments, but like most things in life, it was necessary. I don't know why anyone would want to take these drugs, Emily piped up beside him. Listen to this one. It's a drug that clears up acne, but can also give you diarrhea, acid reflux, and suicidal thoughts. Adam gave her a side eye. Want to hear another? She turned a few more pages. Okay, this one takes care of your migraine, but in its place can give you dry eye, hypertension, and diarrhea. Why is diarrhea always a side effect? Adam snorted, and an older woman in the waiting room frowned at him. He quickly cleared his throat. As if on cue, a nurse opened the door to the waiting room. Adam Reaver, Dr. Watts will see you now. The two followed the nurse through the door, down a hall, and into an exam room. Soon enough, Dr. Watts knocked on the door. They exchanged pleasantries before getting down to business. So what brings you in today? Uh, I'm having some trouble with the medication you put me on. With the Somnivar? Dr. Watts asked, looking over Adam's chart. When did this trouble start? Adam furrowed his brow and looked at Emily for help. She turned to the doctor. About three weeks ago. Is it not helping you sleep? 
Nah, it's making me hallucinate. Dr. Watts studied Adam with some concern. How do you know? I'm seeing things that I know aren't there. Like, I walked onto the deck yesterday and there was this huge white deer in the backyard. And when Emily came out, she asked what I was looking at. And I, I told her, and she looked at me like I was crazy. She said there wasn't any deer there. Anything else like this happen? <sighs> yeah, a few more things. That's why we came in today, to see how concerned we should be. Dr. Watts smiled reassuringly. <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to figure out what's going on. The doctor stood and went to the door, leaving the nervous couple alone. Once in the hallway, he immediately found the receiving nurse and pulled her aside. Mora, I want you to cancel any prescriptions for Somnivar for Adam Reaver effective immediately. Also, please call an ambulance to take him to the hospital. I can do that. What's wrong? The drug is making him hallucinate. Hallucinate what? Emily. He believes he's seeing his late wife. My mother-in-law was poisoning me, then I found out why. By N.M. Wrights. Everyone has their own nightmare-in-law story, though. I couldn't imagine how bad mine would be. As it turns out, the worst thing wasn't my mother-in-law poisoning me. The worst thing was why she did it. I met Craig on one of my rare vacations, and we had sort of a whirlwind relationship. We fell hard for each other, and were married in a courthouse wedding within two months, without ever meeting each other's families. Mine visited a few weeks later, and after their initial shock, really liked Craig. While we got moved in together and figured out married life, I got to hear more about his parents who lived near the rest of his extended family a few hours away, though we never saw them. My work schedule is rough. I work six to seven days a week, and my off days are a blur of appointments and errands. I think in the two years before I met Craig, I only left the city once. I finally got a few days off, so we could head to visit his family about six months later. His whole family came over, and everyone seemed thrilled to meet me except for his mom, Betsy. She was cold and distant and could sit there without saying a single word to me. It was creepy, but I kept trying to spark up a conversation. On our last day, he announced that we should take an afternoon hike up to the national park their house sat on the edge of. Betsy made lunch, and I was changing to go out when it hit me. Just waves of nausea. I wound up in the bathroom for hours that afternoon. I figure it was just a touch of something and thought nothing of it. We went back a few months later and again had a great time except for Betsy. She wouldn't talk to me, though Craig brushed it off and said she was just getting to know me. He finally said we could rent jet skis the next day and explore a lake in the next town 
as a way to get out of the house and unwind, which made me feel better. I was so excited to tell everyone where we were going, but it wasn't to be. After eating, I got so sick I could barely walk for the next two days. At this point, I started to get suspicious. No one else was sick, and we all ate the same food. It seemed like Betsy must have been up to something. But it wasn't until our next visit, when a night in a romantic cottage another hour up the road was canceled, due to me getting sick, that I was sure. Betsy was poisoning me. (laughs) Craig said I was insane. He said it must be an allergy to something his mom used in her cooking, which actually made sense, though I never had time for an appointment to get it checked out. Still, I decided on the next trip that I'd make a big casserole and bring it with us. If I cooked the food and served it, nothing could be added. Well, I hadn't had two bites before I realized I had left the wine I was drinking unattended while I was heating up the casserole, and my stomach was already doing flips. You know what happened next, and it was not pretty. I was so sure his mom was poisoning me, and I confronted Craig about it. I told him I wouldn't visit his family again if she was there. It was our first big fight, but he finally said he wouldn't force me to visit and we could figure out how best to deal with the situation. She had never been nice to me, so it wasn't a loss. The next time I got time off, we decided to head to that little cottage we had rented before and not been able to use. We were driving right past his family's place, and it seemed rude not to stop, so we compromised and bought some pizzas. I even decided just not to drink anything unless it was water from the tap. We got in and threw pizza on our plates. When one of his cousins arrived and everybody briefly left the food unattended, I realized my mistake almost immediately and decided to try an experiment. Craig and I both had two slices, so I just switched our plates while everyone was in the next room. Craig was so sick, I was really worried about him. The drive back to the city was awful. We had to pull off a lot, and he was a mess. We had been back home for three days before I broke down and told him I had switched the plates. I've never seen such anger before. The rage in his eyes is something I'll remember for the rest of my life. He shoved me into a wall and came flying at me. He threw me over the couch, but I somehow managed to grab my keys and phone and ran out the door, not even wearing shoes. I got lucky with the elevator and made it to a friend's place safely, finally turning off my phone after I missed his 47th call. I had no idea what to do or when it would be safe to go home. It was the scariest time of my life. It was two days before I turned my phone back on. When I heard the message from the police, I drove upstate immediately. Craig was dead. 
Betsy had shot him after he broke into her house and charged at her with a knife. I learned that Craig had been married once before, and his wife had died on a tragic hiking accident. Craig made a lot of money in the life insurance payout, and Betsy always suspected Craig had killed her, and was nervous about letting him be alone with me, especially out in the remote area he was so familiar with from his childhood. So she ensured that every time he planned an outing, I would be sick. It wasn't easy, but she didn't think I would believe her, as no one else had ever shared her suspicions about Craig. I found the life insurance policies he took out on me without my knowledge afterward, and refused to press charges against Betsy. She was only trying to protect me. I still visit her from time to time when I need to get out of the city. I love her cooking. They abandoned us with 13 words by user MC Junker. The first thing we did upon contacting the alien starship fleet in orbit was panic. That's not how the history books will tell it. But I was there, and I'm telling you, we lost our damn minds. I was an aide to the president's best speechwriter. I practically lived in the West Wing during first contact. The uncertainty was poisonous, suffocating. No one could think straight. Half our cultural output was about an other that would conquer us, eradicate us. We were scared to let them land without nuking them, even more scared that the nukes would bounce off like rubber balls. But Hollywood's paranoia was unfounded. They came in peace. Humanity and aliens spent seven productive weeks talking, exchanging philosophies of law and morality, setting up ground rules and regulations for future commerce. It went so smoothly, we should have known it would collapse. There's been some nonsense spewed up in the op-eds about why they abandoned all talks and retreated to the skies, never to return. Bullshit about having offended them with our religion or our online memes or our gory, dirty history. While I was in the room with the alien ambassador, they knew about all that stuff and took it in stride. What scared them wasn't our mysticism or our nuclear arms race or the new category on Pornhub. What sparked the retreat was finding out that we have nightmares when we sleep. And how many humans suffer this unconscious terror? The ambassador asked through the translator. Oh, all of us, we told him. For how long have you been ignoring them? Since forever, it's no problem, just one of those things we have to live with. They packed up their gear and sprinted for their ship. Some of their technicians didn't even wait to finish their meals in the cafeteria. I read their last message to us while the president worked on his explanation, trying to run damage control. It was only 13 words long. Get off your planet soon. Stay awake as long as possible. Good luck. 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed all these little stories as much as I did, and I hope the authors think that I did them justice. My eternal gratitude to my patrons and this week's Patreon shoutouts are Misty Little, Audrey Pearson, Ricardo Matos de Azevedo Bosan, and Roger Martinez. Follow me on all the social media stuff, Twitter and Instagram and YouTube at Scare You to Sleep, Facebook.com slash Scare You to Sleep. My personal Twitter and Instagram is at Shelby B. Scott. Don't forget to send me your stories, fiction and nonfiction, scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. I think that's all, everybody. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>